Let us pray. Lord Christ, we praise You for through Your resurrection, You have shattered the gates of hell and trampled death underfoot. You have opened the gates of paradise to us. We praise You for in Your resurrection, You have inaugurated the new age, the promised new creation. You have brought us peace and justification. We praise You for by Your resurrection, You made our resurrection sure and won for us an eternal inheritance in God's new creation. We praise You for through Your resurrection, You were begotten of the Father and became the firstborn from the dead, the new Adam and the King of the universe, to whom all power in heaven and earth belong. Today we are gathered to worship You, risen Christ, for our whole salvation is found in You, and all our hopes are placed in You. Amen. Let us pray. God our Father, God in heaven, God Almighty, Ruler of heaven and earth, we thank You. We thank You every day. We thank You every Lord's Day. We especially thank You today for Christ's resurrection. O Father, by the working of Your Holy Spirit through the Word, may we hear His voice calling to us today, calling us by name, that we might trust Him and follow Him. Amen. He's back! Easter is Jesus' return from the grave. He is risen. He is risen indeed. On Good Friday, Jesus was covered in shame and filled with glory as He died on the cross. On Easter Sunday, Jesus was covered in glory and filled with life. On Good Friday, Satan roared in triumph. On Easter Sunday, Satan whimpered in defeat. On Good Friday, the disciples were despondent. Their hopes dashed. On Easter Sunday, the disciples discovered joy, the ultimate joy, the fulfillment of all their hopes. On Good Friday, it looked like Jesus was down and out. It looked like the cross was the end of the story. It looked like He had been defeated for good. On Easter Sunday, the cross came to be seen for what it was. A victory, a triumph, not the end of the story, but the beginning of a new chapter in God's story. Not the defeat of Jesus, but the defeat of death. On Good Friday, Jesus died for our sins, and so we died with Him and in Him. On Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead in order to justify us and bring us into the life of His new creation. And now because He lives, we live. Because He is raised, we shall be raised as well. John 20 shows us how the resurrection brings us life, glory, and salvation. Everything we could ever want or need is found in the risen Christ. What I want us to do this morning is look at this account of the resurrection through the eyes of one of its key characters. 
Mary Magdalene. Uh, Certainly we could focus on Peter or John or Thomas or any of the other figures that show up in this chapter as they come to the realization that Jesus is risen. But I have reasons for choosing Mary that I think will become clear as we go. What you're going to see is that this is about much more than just what happened to Mary personally. It's really a paradigm for the whole church, for all believers. What it means for us to come to know the risen Christ. In John chapter 19, Mary is one of the last standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. Now in John chapter 20, she is the first to arrive at the empty tomb. John tells us it was the first day of the week. It's interesting. John opens his gospel with echoes of the Genesis creation account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. Now, in a way, we have an echo of Genesis again. We have a new beginning. See, it's really not just the first day of a new week. It's the first day of a new creation. The first day of a new heavens and earth. And just like the original creation account moves from darkness to light, so this creation account will also. We're told Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark. And this is much more than just a description of physical realities. Just like in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, the darkness here is symbolic. It's symbolic of Mary's condition and indeed of the condition of all of God's people at this moment. Mary has not yet entered the light of the risen Christ. And so when she arrived at the tomb, it was not as she had expected. The stone that sealed the tomb had been rolled away. And so she runs to Peter and to the disciple Jesus loved, presumably John, and she tells them... Note that she does not jump from the empty tomb to the conclusion that Jesus must be raised. Instead, she jumps from one tragedy, the tragedy of Jesus' death, to another tragedy, the tragedy of the empty tomb. She figures the body must have been stolen. Somehow things have gotten even worse. Now you might wonder why would somebody steal a corpse? Actually, grave robbing was not an uncommon thing in those days because it was customary to bury corpses with all kinds of expensive spices like myrrh and aloe. In fact, we're told at the end of John chapter 19 in the burial account that Jesus' dead body had been spiced with about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe. So while Mary's hypothesis that the body has been stolen is not right, It's also not crazy. Peter and John come to check it out. They too see the empty tomb and even the linen cloths in which the body of Jesus had been wrapped. Peter and John even go into the tomb. We'll talk more about the significance of that in just a moment. John perhaps came to believe at this moment, but it wasn't the kind of robust faith that would lead him to proclaim the resurrection to others. Actually, the disciples at this point go home, it seems, to ponder what they've seen, still really not understanding, not yet putting together the pieces of the puzzle. I want you to notice this. The original skeptics 
of the resurrection were the disciples themselves. Mary, meanwhile, stood outside the tomb weeping. And now she looks into the tomb. And what does she see? Two angels sitting in white, one at the head and one at the foot where His body had been lain. It's been said that just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so He was raised between two angels. But there's a whole lot more going on here than just some kind of symmetry between His death and His resurrection. Where else in Scripture do we see two angels together? After Adam and Eve sinned and were exiled from the Garden of Eden, after they were cast out of the sanctuary, God stationed two angels, two cherubim with flaming swords to guard the entrance back into the sanctuary, back into the presence of God. Later, when the Israelites built the tabernacle as God's house, they also built the Ark of the Covenant as God's throne to go in the most holy place. And on either end of the Ark, there were angels. And there in the most holy place, there between the cherubim, God was enthroned. The Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God's glory, the dwelling place of God's glory was there between the angels. And in fact, on the Day of Atonement, described in Leviticus 16, it was there between those angels that blood was sprinkled to make a covering for the people's sin. And so when Mary peers into the tomb and sees these two angels at either end, she's really looking into the most holy place. Truly, it is the place where atonement has been made through the body and blood of Christ. The place where sins have been covered by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Indeed, it's the place where God in His glory dwells. Jesus is the Shekinah, the one enthroned between the angels. Jesus is the bloody sacrifice that has covered sin. Jesus is the very presence of God's glory with His people. Now, if the tomb is functionally the most holy place, and if the rock on which His body was laying and these angels were sitting, a functional Ark of the Covenant then what do we make of the fact that Peter and John entered that tomb, that most holy place, or that Mary looked into that most holy place? Well, see, under the law, under the old law, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And only one day a year, and only with blood on his hands, he would go into the most holy place one day a year, He would bring that blood to sprinkle on the Ark of the Covenant. And that was it. No other access to the Shekinah glory. No other access to God's throne room. In fact, in 1 Samuel 6, God struck down the men of Beth Shemesh for merely looking at the Ark of the Covenant. But here, Mary looks at what is the functional Ark of the Covenant. And she's not struck down. Peter and John enter this functional Holy of Holies and they aren't struck down. What is John showing us? When Jesus died on the cross, John doesn't do what Mark does in his Gospel. Mark tells us that the veil that separated 
the most holy place, was torn from top to bottom to reveal now a way into God's presence has been made. John doesn't tell us that, but he gets at the same truth here in this way. When John shows us the empty tomb as a new most holy place, he's showing us atonement has been made. A perfect sacrifice has been offered because Christ has presented His blood and sprinkled His blood on the mercy seat. Now, we have access to God. A new kind of access through the new and living way Jesus has opened up for us. In prayer. And in the liturgy, we come into the heavenly sanctuary. We come before the throne of grace, the true Ark of the Covenant in heaven. We have access to the Shekinah glory of God in Christ. And indeed, this is celebrated throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul in Ephesians 3 teaches this. Paul says we have boldness and access to God with confidence in Christ. We have access to God. Access is what every Jew under the old law longed for. Access to the very throne room of God. Paul says now we have it and we have it with boldness and confidence in Christ. And so really Paul's saying you can know that your prayers get above the ceiling because in Christ you ascend above the ceiling into the very throne room of God when you pray, when you cry out to God in Christ's name. Hebrews 4 teaches the same. It says in prayer we come before the throne of grace. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. The throne of grace. The Old Covenant, again, no one could come before it. But now Hebrews 4 says we come before the throne of grace through our sympathetic high priest. And before the throne of grace we receive the mercy and help we need. Hebrews 10 says we boldly enter the holiest place in gathered worship. When we gather together, we boldly enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. He has torn the veil in His death. And so now we draw near to God by the blood of Jesus. We enter into the heavenly sanctuary. This is why in our liturgy we cry out, we lift our hearts up to the Lord. That's what that's all about. Ascending into the heavenly sanctuary in Christ. Hebrews 12, same point. When we come to church, when we gather for worship, we come to the heavenly Mount Zion the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels and the spirits of departed saints. In other words, we enter into heaven. And of course, the book of Revelation is all about this. It's about the access we now have to the heavenlies. It's about our participation in heavenly worship. Christ's death means the gate to God's heaven. God's throne room has been thrown open to us. In Christ, we can enter the heavenly, most holy place. We have access through the risen Christ. The very cherubim that kept Adam and Eve out of the garden sanctuary in Eden now welcome us into the heavenly sanctuary. So we worship with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We have access to the Shekinah. We can stand before God in all His glory in prayer and in worship without being struck dead. Because Jesus was struck dead for us. And His blood has been sprinkled to make a covering for our sins. All your sin and all your shame were buried with Him in that tomb, but did not come out of the tomb 
with Him. Because of His death, because of His burial, because of His resurrection, because of His ascension, we can boldly and confidently come before the Shekinah glory of God. The veils between us and God have been removed. We can know God face to face as a friend. This is what it means. But Mary still hasn't discovered the fullness of this good news. The angel spoke to her and asked, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, I think the wording of that question is important. Why do the angels, who certainly would have known her name, why do they refer to her as woman? Why not call her by name? Well, I think the fact that she's called woman gives us a hint of what is going on, what's going to be developed in the rest of this section. This is a new creation. It's not just the dawn of a new week. It's the dawn of a new world. The risen Jesus is the first man in this new world. He's the new Adam. Like the first Adam, he's in a garden. In fact, John 19, verse 41, tells us Jesus was buried in a garden. So keep in mind, all of this is taking place in a garden environment. The first Adam was put in a garden. The last Adam is in a garden as well. What happened to the first Adam in that garden? He was put to sleep. He was put in a death-like sleep, and he awoke to find woman given to him as a bride made out of his thigh. The last man was also put to sleep when he was laid to rest in his tomb. And he awoke to find what? Woman. Mary is given this generic name, woman, here because just as Jesus represents every man as a new Adam, so she represents every woman as a new Eve. He's the bridegroom. She's the bride. He is the husband who has died for his bride and who has defeated the serpent for her. Mary represents the bride. Now, there's not going to be a literal marriage here between Jesus and Mary. I like the kind of idiocy that you get in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or other things like that. But what you do have here is a symbolic marriage. And she's the woman. She's the bride, the representative bridal figure. That's why she's called woman. When she tells the angels she's weeping because she has been searching for Jesus in the dark and she hasn't found Him. You know, in a way, really, you could say that is the story of the people of God all throughout the old creation. That's really, in a way, you could say the story of the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the old creation, the people of God have been searching for their true husband, their Messiah. They've been searching for their true husband, their true Messiah in the dark, and they haven't found Him. Every time it looked like they may have found a man who could save the people, who could be a faithful and victorious husband warrior and defeat the serpent on their, on their behalf, that man came up short. It was true of Abraham, it was true of Moses, it was true of David. And so the search went on. Israel really was like Mary here, looking for her Messiah in the dark. 
Indeed, you could say here Mary's weeping really symbolizes Israel's condition, Israel's longing and sadness as she waits in the dark for her man, her promised Messiah. You know, really, this is what the whole book of Song of Solomon is about. That's why we read a little snippet of it this morning. In the Song of Solomon, the young woman goes searching all over at night to find her husband. And because she cannot find him, she weeps. Really the same kind of story that's being told here. But then look at what happens to Mary. After speaking to the angel, she turns, presumably to continue her search for her symbolic husband. She turns and she sees Jesus, the one she's looking for, but she doesn't recognize Him. Jesus says to her, woman, Just like when Adam first met his wife in Genesis 2, he called her woman. So Jesus calls her woman here. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then verse 15 tells us something so interesting. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. But is that a mistake or not? Of course she thinks this man is the gardener. He's a man in a garden. What else would he be? But who's the first gardener in the Bible? Who's the original gardener in the Bible? It's Adam in the Garden of Eden. Again, what do we see here? This is the new Adam. She's the new woman. He's the husband. She's the representative bride. And just as with the first Adam, it's not good for the new Adam to be alone. He needs a bride. He needs a woman. And here she is, the representative of the bride. But she still doesn't get it. And so now he calls her by name. Again, another interesting thing here. Just as Adam, in the book of Genesis, first called his wife woman, the general name, and then gave her the specific name Eve, so Jesus goes through a a two-stage naming process with Mary. First he calls her woman, then he gives her this specific name. He calls her Mary. He calls her Mary. He calls her by name. See, he's not only the new gardener, he's also the good shepherd who knows his sheep and who calls them by name. That's just how he described himself in John chapter 10. He says, Mary. And so notice here, it wasn't seeing Jesus' face that brought her to faith. It was hearing His voice. Jesus, in fact, said, my sheep will hear my voice and follow me. Mary hears him call her by name, and now she's ready to follow. She's ready to follow her husband, gardener, shepherd, Messiah, Shekinah. It's all starting to come together. In fact, I love the way G.K. Chesterton describes this scene. He says this, On the third day, third day after Jesus' death, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. 
In varying ways, they came to realize the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. What is Chesterton saying? The tomb of Jesus has become the womb of a new world. And this isn't just Adam meeting his bride in the garden. This is Yahweh incarnate. This is the Lord Himself walking in the cool of the garden. Mary now recognizes Jesus. And she says, Rabboni, which John tells us means Teacher. Now, we might think that's kind of an anticlimactic way for Mary to refer to Jesus, since obviously he's much more than a mere teacher. Shouldn't she have reached for a higher title at this moment? Well, perhaps, and there will be higher titles given to Jesus in the rest of this chapter, but actually, I think it fits. Given the kind of close relationship that teachers shared with their students, that masters shared with their disciples in ancient Israel. This fits. Calling him Rabboni, it's a term of endearment, a term of intimacy and respect. By calling him teacher, she's saying, I love you, and I want to learn from you, and I want to follow you. I want to submit to you. See, here, her search in the night is complete. In fact, I think what you have here is an almost perfect fulfillment, but really you could also say transformation of Song of Solomon chapter 3. Song of Solomon, a song that Solomon and his bride sing to one another, sing together. Perhaps now we should rename it the Song of Mary. In fact, take those words, some of those words that... Jimmy read for us this morning out of Song of Solomon 3 and put them on the lips of Mary and see how they fit here. Now the bride there in Song of Solomon 3 says she's searching for her man, her husband, in the city. But keep in mind, the book as a whole is set in a garden. And in fact, Mary and Jesus are in a garden right outside the city of Jerusalem. So Song of Solomon 3, listen to what the bride says, by night I sought the one I love. I searched, but I did not find him. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and squares. I will seek the one I love. When the watchmen who go about the city found me, I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely I had passed them by when I found the one I love. I held him and I would not let him go. Like Mary, this bride in Song of Solomon is searching for her husband in the dark and with weeping. And she asks others if they know where he is. And in fact, there are other connections here. The man in Song of Solomon is continually said to be Spiced with myrrh and aloe. The exact same spices used at the end of John chapter 19 to anoint Jesus' body. These kinds of spices were used in weddings as much as at funerals. 
because these spices were used to prepare a body for burial, but also to prepare the body for one's wedding. But there's an interesting twist here. An interesting twist that doesn't just shows us what's going on here. It's not just the fulfillment of Song of Solomon, but really it's transformation. In Song of Solomon, the bride says she will cling to her bridegroom and not let go. Apparently, that's what Mary wants to do here. But Jesus does not allow her to cling to Him. That's what He says in verse 17. Do not cling to Me. Now, why is that? Why doesn't Jesus want her clinging to Him or cleaving to Him? Well, I think it's because of the kind of marriage that's in view. Look at what Jesus goes on to say. Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to My Father but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. What is Jesus saying? I think Jesus is saying He can actually have a more intimate one flesh relationship with His bride if He ascends to His Father. Now, why is that? Jesus has actually already explained it to His disciples in the Upper Room Discourse. What will happen when Jesus ascends? He will pour out His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be the tie that binds husband and wife together. The Spirit comes as the divine matchmaker. Husband and wife will cleave to one another in the Spirit. The Spirit will be the bond of love between husband and bride. And indeed, all of John's Gospel has been preparing for this moment. The marriage of the Messiah to His people. All of John's Gospel has been building up to just this moment with Jesus and Mary in the garden. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana and they run out of wine. And what does He do? He reveals Himself to be the true host and the true husband by providing wine for the bride and her guests. He's the true host, the true husband. In chapter 3, John the Baptist says Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to get His bride. Jesus' voice is the voice of the bridegroom calling out to His bride. John sees himself as a friend of the bridegroom making preparations for a wedding. Well, the preparations have been made. The wedding's about to happen. In John 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman who came to draw water at the well. We find this woman had had five husbands and is now living with a man who isn't her husband. What does Jesus do? He offers Himself to her as the true husband. He will love her and protect her as these other men have failed her. He will give to her living water to drink. And so she will never thirst again. In John 8, Jesus rescues the woman caught in adultery from the self-righteous and hypocritical Pharisees. How do you only catch one person in adultery anyway? The Pharisees are obviously self-righteous and hypocritical, blind to their own foolish. What does Jesus do? He acts as her true husband, protecting her from these serpents who would stone her to death. He saves her life. 
And here in John 20, it all comes to completion. Jesus, the new Adam in a new creation garden, meets His bride. He will ascend into heaven and then give her His Holy Spirit as a wedding gift. And when He pours out His Spirit, He will be one flesh and one spirit with His bride. And they will live happily ever after. See, John's Gospel is really a love story. How does it end? It ends with wedding bells and feasting, with singing and with dancing. It ends with a marriage, with a husband and wife. It ends with this divine husband and this creaturely bride enveloped in the love of the Holy Spirit. Oh, like all love stories in John's Gospel, you find serpent-like villains. You find a damsel in distress. And most importantly, you find a victorious, conquering Savior. A hero who lays down his life to rescue the one he loves and to bring her into his home. And yes, he is wounded in that fight, but he finally gets the girl and together they will live happily ever By faith, we are swept up into this love story. By faith, the Song of Solomon becomes our love song as our search for love comes to an end in Jesus. See, what is John's Gospel really all about from beginning to end? It's about the eternal Son of God becoming one of us in order to be one with us. And now by His Spirit, He enters us and we enter Him. And all that He has, as our husband, He freely shares with us. He is the King and we, His church, are His Queen. We participate in His life and His righteousness. We share in His reign. So interesting and beautiful towards the end of the Song of Solomon. The beloved bride sings to her lover of a love as strong as death. She sings of a jealousy as fierce as the grave. But with Mary now, we can sing a new song. We can sing of a love stronger than death. We can sing of a passion that has overcome the grave. For our husband, our head, our Messiah, our Shekinah has conquered death and destroyed the grave Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. We thank You for creating the world that Your Son might have a spouse. We thank You that when we became an unfaithful spouse in the fall of our father Adam, You sent Your Son into the world to rescue the bride, the damsel in distress. That she might be cleansed and forgiven and made to have no blemish, no spot, no wrinkle. We thank You that we are that bride. All together, the church, corporately, we are the bride of Christ. He has laid down His life for us He has rescued us from the clutches of death and Satan and hell. 
He has made Himself one with us by giving us His Spirit, one flesh, one spirit. Father, now may we live faithfully as His bride. May we follow Him. And Father, may He continue to protect us and provide for us. In Him, may we know a love stronger than death. A passion that has overcome the grave. This is our prayer. In Christ's name, Amen.